Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the jockeying for position that is happening among GOP politicians, both incumbents and hopefuls, in this sort of murky Trump, post-Trump political era, in which the path to victory for Republicans is to support Trump unquestioningly, obviously, while also keeping an eye on the long game, for which one may want to attempt to out-Trump Trump to gain the support of his cultish masses. To explain all this, we have clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Skullduggery, The Majority Report, Some More News, and The Takeaway with an additional members-only clip from The Bulwark. And we start tonight in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where this happened last week. Just see if you can figure out what is going on here. Oh, yeah. Where's Goliath? (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Bless you. (laughs) Wow. How powerful is that? Oh, my gosh. Our next governor. Our next governor. Yes, that man in the center, the man receiving the giant sword. That was Pennsylvania State Senator and Republican candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano. The man dressed in multiple American flags and the woman to his left are the organizers of this event in Gettysburg last week. And they are gifting Mastriano what they call a David sword. And that's a nice gift. Who doesn't appreciate a good sword, right? But honestly, the sword may have been the least weird thing about this event because this was a big QAnon event. And not just QAnon, it was kind of a every conspiracy theory under the sun event. This is the poster for the event, which was called Patriots Arise for God and Country. The headliner for this event, you can see her name there, Dr. Betsy Eads. She's actively pushing a theory that people who got the COVID vaccine booster shot are going to get AIDS. She was the headliner at this event, but long before they got to the headliner, the organizers really set the tone for this two-day gathering with a video that played in the event's first hour. Media propaganda, the child trafficking, and the slave economy, all of these control systems will crumble down. will collapse in only a few countries at first, but other countries will soon follow. We will unite against the dark. That crazy video keeps going like that with a hodgepodge of every conspiracy theory possible from 9-11 was an inside job to 5G networks are killing you to Hitler's death was faked. Didn't see that one coming, did you? But of course, all of those conspiracy theories are just the appetizers. The main course is the big one that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. And candidate for governor Doug Mastriano wasn't just attending this event. He was all in. His campaign auctioned off this print of a painting of a very muscular Donald Trump uh, to raise money for his campaign. Someone paid $4,000 for it. Madness. 
Mastriano himself, who has been subpoenaed by the January 6th investigation over his efforts to overturn Joe Biden's win in Pennsylvania, he gave a speech in which he described that subpoena as a badge of honor. And you know how times change and how fast they change, because just last year, Doug Mastriano was distancing himself from this same group and this same event. His spokesperson at the time said he strongly condemns the QAnon conspiracy theory and that it was a mistake that he was listed as a speaker at last year's conference. But this year, he's not shying away. He went all in and left with a sword and a goodie bag. And Doug Mastriano, remember, is the front runner for the Republican nomination for governor in Pennsylvania. One new poll out today shows him with a 14-point lead over his nearest opponent. And that poll may be a bit of an outlier, but you get the idea. It's time to say it. This is not the fringe. This is the Republican Party now, and not just in Pennsylvania. Last weekend, Republicans in Michigan chose two election deniers to be their candidates for statewide office in November. One of those two candidates spoke at a QAnon conspiracy theorist conference late last year. She is now the official Republican nominee for secretary of state in Michigan, which means that if she wins in November, she will be in charge of overseeing elections for the entire state. The other candidate has said that his Democratic opponent, the currently serving attorney general of Michigan, should be in jail. And if he replaces her as attorney general, he'll have the power to help do that. Next door in Wisconsin, the front runner for the Republican nomination for governor, the closest thing to an establishment Republican candidate in that race, this week said she too believes the 2020 election was rigged. And it's not just election conspiracies that are animating the Republican Party now. The QAnon craziness has seeped into more and more of the GOP's agenda. The central thesis, I guess, of the QAnon conspiracy is that the country is run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping Democratic Party pedophiles. And what is the latest crusade from Republican politicians? pushing laws to outlaw any mention of gender or sexuality in schools, and then shamelessly accusing anyone who objects, Democrats, even the Disney Corporation, of being pedophiles or groomers out to molest our children. Republican legislators are also racing to see who can ban the most books in schools, setting up new tribunals that will sift through every school library and remove any book that Republican lawmakers find objectionable. Or maybe a book ban isn't quite stringent enough for today's Republican Party. Maybe what we need is a good old-fashioned book burning. Let's say you take these books out of the library. What are you going to do with them? You're going to put them in the street? Light them on fire? Where are they going? Representative Sexton. I don't have a clue, but I would burn them. The 2020 election was stolen. Democrats are a bunch of pedophile groomers. Burn all the books we don't like. This is the Republican Party now, which makes it absolutely hilarious that Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, a man who is just buying Twitter, surveyed this political landscape and concluded that Democrats, Democrats are the ones who have become crazy extremists. I mean... Whatever you think of Elon Musk's politics or his plans for Twitter, here is a guy who is unquestionably brilliant in some areas. He's designed cars and spaceships and built these successful companies. But his big brain take on today's political situation is literally this stick figure drawing he shared on the social media platform he is in the process of taking over. This stick figure drawing that shows the figure in the middle, standing slightly left of center politically in 2008, 
and then watching Democrats sprint leftward over the following 13 years, while Republicans stayed put exactly where they were. No change from the Republicans there. Musk wrote, quote, I strongly supported Obama for president, but today's Democratic Party has been hijacked by extremists. It's the Democrats who've gone far left, not the Republicans far right. As the political scientist Don Moynihan replied, quote, Obama's party is led by Obama's vice president, and the other party is led by the guy who tried to orchestrate a coup. But sure, it's the Dems who are extremists. that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, our FBI, would have got an illegal wiretap on a U.S. president. Who would have believed? Who would have believed that the January 6th protesters, many of whom are not even accused of a violent crime, would still be rotting in prison without an ounce of due process which is required under our Constitution? And ladies and gentlemen, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of not living in a country that makes its own stuff that relies on the communist Chinese to make the things that we need. I'm sick of knowing that our own FBI is more concerned about arresting American citizens than it is about stopping the drug and sex trafficking across our southern border. Let's dissect this a little bit <laughs> just go through you know one by one his first example the fbi got a wiretap on a sitting u.s president um actually there's no evidence that ever happened january 6 defendants rotting in jail without an ounce of due process they've all been charged in court proceedings with full due process rights And that last bit about drug and sex trafficking, uh, that seemed to be the standard, what is becoming the increasingly standard QAnon dog whistle out there, sex trafficking, right? Let me jump in here and and add one thing not mentioned in any part of that speech is the word or name Trump, which kind of raises, which goes to the point that there's now kind of Trumpism without Trump. Um, And so I'm, I'm kind of curious if Trump isn't the thing that's moving the needle in these races, what is? Okay. Well, two thoughts on that. And actually, Bill, we guys talked about there. So number one is, I'm with you. I keep on seeing these indications that we are already in a post-Trump universe. I think there's some kind of lag time in kind of determining this. But one of those is when I was out with Josh Mandel and, and trailing Josh Mandel and Michael Flynn on their sweep across uh, from Cincinnati up to Cleveland. What was fascinating about that was I kept on hearing them talk about a stolen election and they repeated a lot of the election lie that Trump has put out there. And they would whip the crowd into, a, you know, into, well, not a frenzy like a Trump rally, but, you know, a frenzy for a, you know, a average size campaign talking about it, but never actually mentioning Trump. And I heard a lot of the voters at those stops telling me that, too, that, you know, stolen election, election lie, but not supporting Trump because he's supporting Vance. And the ability for them to dissociate from the name bearer. Right. That Trump himself 
and stick with the Trumpism. So the second part of that is that clip that, so the, Mike, the clip that you played of Vance that going through the TikTok of January 6th, you know, rot, allegedly rotting in jails, uh, you know, et cetera. It sounded like Tucker Carlson. It sounded more like Tucker Carlson than it did Trump. And for that group, and again, I don't know that this represents a majority or even a sizable plurality of the Republicans right now, but for that group of kind of like your hardcore Trumper loyalist MAGAs and even smaller subset of QAnon types, that sounded like Tucker Carlson. And my guys have been telling me for more than a year now that Tucker really has the zeitgeist better than Trump. It's a fascinating point because, you know, Tucker Carlson has a much bigger megaphone right now, right, on, on Fox. Yes. And Trump yes. is off of Twitter. He puts out yes. these, these you know, statements, but they don't get the traction that his, you yep. know, kind of daily, uh, you know, tweets did. And so it's sort of the, you know, the second part of, of what you referred to before as the post-Trump era. Is it, are we now beginning to see the Tucker Carlson era beginning? <laughs> it feels that way. And, you know, look, at the beginning of last year, right after January 6th, you know, obviously all Trump's people, all they could cared about with January 6th was, oh, Trump was deplatformed. He's canceled, cancel culture, big tech. That was their take on it. And they kept on saying, I'd, you know, talk with these guys and they would tell me all the time. They're like, you know, Trump has to get the megaphone back. He has to build his own social media company. Well, OK, he's got the social media company. Right. Trump truth. Right. And he's not using it. And he advertised it at the rally on Saturday, but he's himself is not using it. He's using these workarounds. Same thing with uh, Trump Jr. Don Jr. gets the most traction on Twitter. Not Gitter, not Parler, not CloudHub, you know, not the other ones, not even truth. The thing he ostensibly is working on. So Abbott has been having state troopers inspect commercial vehicles that are coming over from Mexico. And I'm sure most people are aware a lot of trade comes over from Mexico on a daily basis. And this has caused huge snags in the supply chain hours upon hours. I think it's important to remember, too, that while there's a bureaucratic nightmare on the U.S. side of the border, um, truckers in Mexico have staged protests to basically say, we're going to shut down the border, too. Um, and oftentimes that has been sort of overshadowed. So we want to shout those people out for using their labor power to, to make a point. But, you know, the Far Reynosa Bridge alone, like $70 million a day of goods are coming across that border. Mexican agencies have been saying around $8 million a day has just been lost um, in all of this kind of madness. Um, and a significant amount of trucks are now just rerouting around Texas. Um, you know, they're going to other ports of uh, ports of entry in Arizona, um, you know, and it was almost immediately uh, <laughs> a disaster politically. Sid Miller, who's the agricultural commissioner here, uh, came out and he was one of the first people to, to really hit Abbott hard. Um, Sid Miller is, you know, is a Republican, uh, but has a very weird relationship with Abbott. Apparently, Greg Abbott um, hasn't returned one of his emails or phone calls or even had a meeting with the agriculture, agricultural commissioner of Texas in 70 years. Um, and of course, when uh, Abbott, uh, um, Abbott's response to Sid Miller's basically criticizing his policies that Sid Miller doesn't know what's going on. Well, it makes a lot of sense if you're not responding to emails from one of your important uh, Republican right. uh, you know, members of government. Um, 
So, I mean, just to, to fast forward a little bit. So this has been going on, uh, like Beto, of course, has been showing up at the border and has been making uh, rightfully, um, you know, um, trying to draw awareness to this. Um, but b- what Abbott's now doing is he's trying to save face. So because this has been so unpopular and the thing about this, too, is like if you're in Texas and you might have not experienced this at like the grocery store yet, but it's coming. And they're saying basically this weekend is when you're going to start seeing empty shelves. You're not going to be able to get fruits and vegetables or at least it'll be. It's communism. (laughs) Well, it's big government getting in the way of free enterprise, right? Obviously. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, so. so, so there's a lot of pushback um, against it already, and I think it's only going to get worse. Greg has tried to save face. Um, he went down and he uh, negotiated with the governor of uh, Nuevo Leon um, and got very, very vague promises from the governor uh, that there'll be some more border security initiatives in Nuevo Leon. Um, for people who aren't familiar uh, with the kind of geography of you know the te- the, the Mexican side of the, the border there, Nuevo Leon has a very important port of entry with Texas, but it's actually very, very small. It's a tiny little sliver. So we're still waiting to see if other states are going to show up. So Chihuahua, um, yesterday afternoon, um, they also negotiated a deal. But uh, Coahuila, um, as far as I know, there's been no deal. And the most important one, at least when it comes comes to, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that um, is, uh, um, Jesus Christ, is a Tamalipas, Jesus Christ, a Tamalipas. Um, <laughs> Way better than when I attempt to like read an I am in Spanish here on the show. So uh, don't even worry. Um, they're, uh, they, they still have not, as far as I know, negotiated, and that's going to really hit, um, a lot of the agriculture here. And I don't know, it's, it's been a, it's been a really interesting, uh, you know, week, frankly, uh, to see the kind of pushback from even within the Republican party to these kind of stunts, um, to see how willing Abbott is to sort of do stupid shit like this, um, you know, so that he can, you know, uh, try to bolster his national image. And that's the thing you have to remember too, is, you know, he's doing this. I think with presidential ambitions and he wants to go like the, his goal right now is to be, you know, sitting with Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity and being able to say that I'm the real, uh, you know, tough on the border guy. There was a segment on Fox news um, where they compared him. They called him the Ron DeSantis of Texas, uh, which I don't think his team very much is going to appreciate. So, I mean, we'll be, it'll be interesting to see how much, uh, you know, benefit he gets out of this, but it's really been an absolute disaster. Yeah, I mean, bringing up Ron DeSantis there, it's interesting. There's no way he can catch up to like the media darling treatment that Ron DeSantis has gotten, especially because DeSantis is, you know, way more ahead of the curve on like some of these cultural um, Mm. formative stunts that 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 Abbott has not ever seemingly been able to capture. And he's been in office for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. I, I like I mean, what are we thinking if he does run for president top uh tops three percent in the polling (laughs) yeah i would be surprised i mean and you know i mean him as a national political figure is interesting because yeah i don't know how i mean people probably liberals probably get you know worked up about him as as a kind of villain um but you know even the way that he runs the state here um you know there's a lot of stuff that really should like Abbott really wants to be a kind of big media figure. Um, and he tries to play this kind of hardball stuff, but internally in Texas, um, he's been quite effective, um, at, at, uh, you know, promoting an extreme conservative, you know, far right form of government. Not only that, and this is something, um, if I can make a quick plug, I'm writing a piece for sublation media, um, 
uh, coming up in a few weeks on what Greg Abbott's done to the office of governor here, because, you know, people might not be familiar with the way the system works in Texas, but Texas has historically been a weak governor state. Um, you know, for a long time, governors were only elected for, you know, to office for two years. And the executive power of that office is historically extremely weak. It's sort of fragmented into different elected boards or appointed boards and things are staggered. So you only get a few appointments. Um, you know, so typically that's been a quite a, a weak office and not really something that, you know, people aspire to who had the you know, grand designs of, of power. Um, but following in the footsteps of Rick Perry, Rick Perry really started to reformulate the government um, and create a kind of like clientelist system because he was in power for so long and that sort of, and he inherited a lot from Bush. But Greg Abbott has used the COVID pandemic in a really fascinating way because a lot of people who, you know, get worked about, you know, vaccine mandates and all this stuff, they're saying, it's the government's coming for my freedoms. The government's trying to extend its power. Um, but what Abbott has done is he has declared a state of emergency since the beginning of the pandemic ongoing to today, right? Which is might sound surprising to people who are living here where they're, you know, you very rarely see a mask or anything like that. Um, you know, the government very much acts here like COVID-19 is not, you know, still here. And Abbott has used the, um, you know, emergency powers that he asserted at the beginning of the pandemic to basically wage war on all other sources of authority in the state. Um, so, while I don't know about his presidential ambitions, he has fundamentally like reshaped, um, you know, the the way the system of, of government in Texas works. And, you know, it's not really one of those things that comes up at the top of the headlines because it's very slow and methodical, um, but it's going to have very long term consequences, especially if the Republicans are able to maintain power here. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. I wanted to go all the way back to Ron DeSantis, an establishment Republican trying to make it in a MAGA world. As Trump's deputy campaign manager, David Bossie, put it, I put Ron DeSantis in the same category of defenders, both defending the president and being somebody who works best on offense to help forward the president's agenda. This isn't, like, scandalous, and it's a common exchange relationship between politicians and a president. And during this time, it proved to be an extremely smart move. Like, say what you will about all these caustic wads, they are definitely calculating, and we should not underestimate them. But unlike most presidents, there's a certain point of no return here that I think is interesting. Courting Trump's base wasn't something you could do non-committally, but rather a very hard line you'd have to cross. 
Everyone knows my husband Ron DeSantis is endorsed by President Trump, but he's also an amazing dad. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league, so good. I just thought you should know. Ron DeSantis for governor. Extremely embarrassing. That's not like an SNL sketch, but an actual campaign ad Ron did in 2018. According to his close friend Kent Sturman, DeSantis figured out what made the president notice people, and he did those things. And I guess the key word there is did, as in Ron DeSantis would fully embrace the Trump way of doing things, all the way down to the racist dog whistling. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. That's Ron talking about Andrew Gillum, the black man he was running against, which read to many as pretty f***ing ghoulish given this country's long history of comparing African Americans to monkeys. Yes, that one is by cancel culture martyr Dr. Soyce. Damn that cancel culture and damn the weird pronunciation of your name, doctor! DeSantis, of course, later claimed that the statement had nothing to do with race, but like, who casually uses the term monkey this up? Even in that clip, it sounds like he forced it into his speech deliberately, which of course is how a dog whistle works. But benefit of the doubt, maybe he just uses and likes the phrase, maybe he was referring to Air Bud Entertainment's 2016 hit, Monkey Up. Either way, Ron would win this election and seek out issues that would also cater to the Trump crowd, casting aside actual problems in his state in exchange for solving pretend ones that further this bizarre culture war Trumpist bullshit. At one point, he signed a bill banning sanctuary policies despite no sanctuary cities actually existing in Florida before the law's enactment. Just weird performative stuff. You can compare this, of course, to his Senate counterpart Marco Rubio's vague anti-wokeness bill, because obviously the pressing issue facing Florida, a state with rising homelessness and poverty and a failing infrastructure, are rainbow flag logos and diverse superheroes. Great job, Marco. Truly a man of the working class. And while I wish I could say that this type of extremely embarrassing pandering doesn't work with their base, well, I can't. When you look at the Biden, the Brandon administration in terms of what they're doing. Oh my god, you guys, just say fuck Joe Biden. You can just say that. It's not illegal or anything. Fuck him. Fuck Joe Biden. Fuck him. See, the common thing across the board here is that all of these people base their political careers on being extremely reactive. It's not about governing the people, but maintaining an opposition to the left. You can see this with DeSantis and Ted Cruz's Obama years, most of their actions simply being to repeal stuff the president was doing. This was positively vital to their careers, as evidenced by the time Chris Christie dared to credit Obama for his swift response during Hurricane Sandy and became a fucking pariah in his own party. You could, I guess, argue that we'd see the same reaction if a Democrat praised Trump, except the opposition to Obama wasn't like, on moral grounds? With Obama, the right wasn't mad at human rights abuses or drone striking civilians. They just didn't like him and opposed him across the board. Marxist Obama! They stonewalled him out of spite, and it worked really well. 
And after they all accepted Trump as the new frontman for the GOP, we saw another shift. Republican politicians who knew that at some point, Trump would no longer be the president and could move in to fill his shoes. That meant not focusing on actual policy, but rather attempting to harness the cult-like base he collected with broad talking points. The culture war, anti-wokeness stuff. And the reason I keep going back to DeSantis is that, as it stands right now, he is the only conservative politician who Trump's base will consider for a possible presidential pick. In polls that specifically ask who voters will go for, in the event that Trump doesn't run, 22% said they would pick Ron DeSantis, although they probably thought they were saying Ron DeSantis. Compare that with any of the other names, none of which even broke double digits, with the exception of one candidate, a Mr. Unsure. Sounds mysterious. I like him. Nadine, let me start with you. What do you make of this bill that the governor signed on Friday to end Disney's special tax status? Well, what we're experiencing in Florida right now is the adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, there's been 25 years of Republican rule and under DeSantis, he has consolidated every level of government from the Supreme Court to the House and the Senate. And he acts with impunity. In fact, the legislators could stay home and he could simply write the laws and there'd be no difference. And so, you know, he is essentially uh, drunk with power and he's made it very clear that this sort of tyrannical temper tantrum is punishment for a company expressing its values, standing up for its people, trying to create an environment that draws top talent. And how that is showing up in Florida is we are seeing not just an attack on the LGBT community, we are replaying history. You know, in Florida, we had the Johns Committee that went after civil rights advocates and gay people in the education system. Then we had Anita Bryant, who launched her Save Our Children campaign, using the same rhetoric of calling, you know, gay people groomers and pedophiles. And she was backed by the moral majority. And and their main issue at that time wasn't abortion. It was school integration. So once again, we see how these appeals to racial panic and um, anti-LGBT panic going hand in hand, and they always say serve the same purpose, which is to consolidate power by sowing division and whipping up fear. The other piece is Disney's been good business, right? Like the notion that by revoking this special tax status, there's a real possibility that we're going to see a tax hike for many Florida residents. That does seem to go directly against what conservative lawmakers say that they stand for at their core. You know, I think the assumption there is that there is a core. Right now, the only thing that motivates DeSantis and the Republican Party is power. And DeSantis is intending to usurp Trump. And so his audience is not Floridians. He doesn't care about the fallout from any of his actions. He's speaking to a national audience of his base, of people who are terrified in the aftermath of the uprisings after George Floyd's murder, who see a generation emerging that embraces the multiracial future of America. And for them, This is their last stand. This is their great white hope. This is the messaging that he brings, that I will stop this education from existing in our schools. I will erase the things that make you uncomfortable. I will chant, build the wall. All of these things 
are a reaction to not only the Obama presidency, but the demographic reality that we are increasingly a nation of older white people and younger brown people, what they call the graying of America and the, and the browning of America. And that demographic collision is at the heart of the existential panic that is empowering the DeSantis's of the world. So he's willing to gut Florida's university system to corrupt any independence of any science-based entities in our state because his audience is the small dollar donors nationwide that fill his coffers every time he shows up on Fox News. And and so I, I think it's important to say it this way. This isn't about a company getting involved in politics. The companies that are being political are the ones who are keeping their mouth shut, ducking and covering and hope it blows over. The ones that are not being political are the ones who are actually trying to walk the talk of these values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, who understand what it takes to draw and keep talent. I mean, corporations are motivated not first and foremost by values that come from the heart, but values that protect the pocketbook. And so they don't want to hemorrhage talent. The pressure that companies are feeling right now largely has come from within the organizations saying, be who you said you were. When you recruited me, be who you said you were when you trained us and said you were going to create a safe environment where my family will be protected. There's a reason that the military has said they are willing to transfer military families out of states where their kids aren't safe because of this, the inundation of these anti-LGBT laws. Me and my older brothers were born on military bases in Maine because it was the only base my family could be stationed at. And we're seeing the same kind of constriction of rights, demonizing, stigmatizing. So I will say this, the companies that aren't being political are the ones who will say, these are our values, we're going to stand up for our people, and we're going to push back on things that cause harms. We've discussed it many, many, many times on this show already, that Trumpism might more accurately be described as the early stages of an American fascism, a palingenetic ultranationalist ideology that promotes cultural anxieties around sexuality and gender, cultivates an us-versus-them mentality, often centered on ethnic or racial lines, and encourages anti-intellectualism through propaganda and denial of reality. Fascist parties often coalesce around a single, charismatic strongman who becomes the all-powerful leader of the party. Because of this, fascist movements often go hand-in-hand with centralizing styles of government, like totalitarianism. I alone can fix it! In her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, political theorist Hannah Arendt describes what she calls the masses, individuals who live on the periphery of society and who may have lost their former social identity and emotional bearings as a result of some abrupt political, geopolitical, or economic dislocation. She says, quote, The term masses applies only where we deal with people who either because of sheer numbers or indifference or a combination of both cannot be integrated into any organization based on common interest, into political parties or municipal governments or professional organizations or trade unions. Put more simply, 
Arendt's masses don't fall along traditional political or class lines, which exist because they share some common interest or political goal. Rather, the masses are composed of people who feel disenfranchised by mainstream politics, who don't cleanly fit into one economic class or income level. Equally importantly, the masses become mobilized when their way of life is drastically impacted by, say, an economic crash or a climate crisis or the continued disappearance of manufacturing and other blue-collar jobs at the hands of automation and the gig economy. A big, drastic change. Like, if some big monster just snapped their fingers and made everyone clones? Something about multiplicity. You get it. These people, Arendt says, who are traditionally indifferent to politics, provide a totally fresh pool of supporters for totalitarian leaders to draw from. Then, once mobilized, the masses turn against the established system and its government, since in their eyes, the system never actually did anything for them. And for a lot of people... Fair enough. This is perfect for the totalitarian leader, who uses the masses' fury to tear down the established democratic systems of government and replace them with their own system of authoritarian control. Trump's administration wasn't actually totalitarian. After all, he lost. For all his efforts to undermine the legitimacy of our elections and cast doubt on long-standing systems of government, our democratic institutions are still standing, for better or for worse. But it feels clear that Trump's appeal... His rhetorical style and strategy were all centered around appealing to a base of supporters who absolutely fit Aaron's definition of the masses. Angry, marginalized people who don't trust the system but do completely trust their fearless leader. The problem we're now seeing is that, well, Trump isn't the president. And maybe won't ever be again? And the problem we're seeing is that none of the Republicans attempting to follow in Trump's footsteps seem to have his... Je ne sais quoi, whether because their supporters keep dying of COVID, they're fielding allegations of sex trafficking, or it's because they're just a weird, unlikable little dude. In other words, Donald Trump, for some reason, had a charm to him that these other people just can't duplicate. He was, for all of his many, 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 many faults, really good at coming off as natural and likable to his base. These turds, on the other hand, not so much. In part, I'm sure, because everything they're doing is a pale imitation rather than a new freshness. Uh, A copy of a copy of a copy. For example... I'm Michelle Fiore, and I'm running for governor. I spent my whole life fighting the establishment. I was the first female majority leader in the Nevada Assembly and one of the first electeds to endorse Donald J. Trump. And you better believe I was attacked for it. Washington Post called me a gun-toting calendar girl. And Politico magazine said that I was the Lady Trump. And I don't care. We need outsiders, fighters, not the same old boring, moderate, compromise, Lou Blazer politicians. Let's start with a three-shot plan. Ban vaccine mandates, ban critical race theory, and stop voter fraud. The Joe Biden administration is coming after me. I'm Michelle Fiore, and I'm ready for the fight. 
Did she drive all the way to the desert just to shoot three bottles? Why are they full? You're supposed to drink them first, then shoot them, and then shoot, like, more stuff? You had a perfectly good TV to shoot. It was right there! This ad by Michelle Fiore for governor is like several metaphors on top of each other. The first being that these ghouls often think of guns as political props while not seeming actually that enthusiastic about firing them. It's weird to think that anyone could see someone trying so transparently hard to be the next Trump and actually think that they were a viable candidate. Like, even if I was a pro-Trump, gun-loving, anti-mask country boy Cody, images like this would seem insultingly pandering. She's even doing her own campaign fraud scam, and like, come on, lady, play an original song, you know? Like, big deal. Trump also assaulted women. Give us something new. For a lot of these lower-level people trying to get the Trump vote, there's definitely a large intersection in the Venn diagram of calculating politicians and people who are in need of a serious intervention. I'm not being flippant here. A lot of these folks have a real history of assaults or threats or intense interest in conspiracy theories. And as the GOP moves away from Trump, you're going to see a lot more true believers instead of opportunists. And they all seem to have a few things in common, the key one being that they have some amount of resources giving them the ability to launch an effective campaign. They're often wealthy, with a background in business, or in some cases simply inherited their wealth. And on top of that, they seem to be extremely lacking in empathy. These two come to mind. Remember them? The one on the right is Mark McCloskey, a wealthy personal injury lawyer who, as you might have guessed, is running for Senate as we speak. This is after Roy Blunt announced he will not seek re-election, continuing a pattern where older establishment Republicans are leaving and being replaced by this MAGA-era group. Gee, would probably be good for Democrats if more Democrats retired, huh? Whatever. Anyway, best of luck to Mark McCloskey, guy who likes pointing guns at protesters, who also thinks that 13-year-old rape and incest victims shouldn't be allowed abortions. There's also Amanda Chase, a member of the Virginia Senate who is currently running for governor. Amanda holds the honor of being the first Virginia state senator since the 80s to be censured, both the GOP and Dems voting against her after she posted a bunch of wild horse shit about the Capitol rioters being both patriots, but also secretly Antifa. Which is it? It can't be both, you know. She also took a hard stance against the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict, despite even a lot of the right agreeing with that outcome. She calls herself... Trump in heels, and part of her greatest hits include wearing a gun to the Senate floor and berating a Capitol Police officer for not letting her park in a secure area. Like, that second thing isn't even a political gray area, she just legally couldn't park there. When she announced her campaign, one of the men cheerfully standing behind her would go on to be arrested with a bunch of handguns with plans to attack a Pennsylvania vote-counting site. They have very real histories of violence and sure seem like they could potentially hurt somebody or enable people to hurt other people, and they pose a really big problem for the establishment GOP or anyone pivoting away from Trump. Because while we're, fingies crossed, not likely to see any of them in the White House anytime soon, people like Amanda Chase and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert all represent the GOP's current grassroots side. The only reassurance we have right now is that all of these people, so far, just don't seem to have the national charisma that Trump bafflingly obtained. So again, what if Trump doesn't run? 
Where will the GOP and his base find themselves? This dilemma has left a gap for the GOP open for one of two possibilities. The first is what we're talking about, that in 2024, the Republicans field a presidential candidate who is like Trump, but possibly smarter, someone who can effectively appeal to the Trump base, possibly even one of the people we talked about, or way worse. After all, Trump wasn't a politician, but a TV personality, paving the way to some of the darkest of timelines. There are loads of people who are actively trying to do this. But the second, and equally bad option, is that they don't find anybody, and the Republicans completely lose control over their base. We're already seeing this with Amanda Chase, who after her bipartisan censure, has been flip-flopping between the Republican and independent parties. Aaron spends a long time talking about what happens to the masses when totalitarianism collapses. And she says that, contrary to what you might expect, the masses pretty much keep keeping on. This is because they're loyal not actually to the individual leader or to any particular goal, but to the fictional reality the leader has created for them. A world of conspiracy, of black and white morals, where everyone is out to get them, and only the charismatic leader can speak the truth. Once the leader is gone, they either revert back to their previous state of apathy, ceasing to believe in the dogma for which yesterday they still were ready to sacrifice their lives, or they find a new function, a new cause to throw themselves behind and support just as vigorously and stupidly as the initial one. Back to brunch, or on to Lackfist! The repercussions of this are most easily seen with COVID. While Trump was in office, he downplayed the virus and undermined the necessity of masks and of the vaccines, and now Republican voters are dying left, right, and center because they were convinced not to get the vax, and now nobody in the Republican Party has any ability to control them. Not even Trump. Breitbart, bastion of respectable journalism, has pivoted to arguing that actually... The anti-vax movement was a democratic psyop all along as a part of a bid to kill Republicans in a desperate attempt to get their readers to stop dying from an easily preventable virus. In Florida, DeSantis' approval ratings have dropped as Florida's COVID numbers have gone up, in large part because the people who like DeSantis keep dying of the coronavirus, and the people who aren't dying don't like that the governor of their state seems to be okay with people dying of the coronavirus. And as a pandemic rages across the globe, income inequality in America continues to spike, and total climate catastrophe grows nearer and nearer. More and more people are realizing that the status quo is not equipped to fix these problems. Fascists and totalitarians prey on these feelings, on disenchantment with the establishment and resentment of the people in power, to amass support for their undemocratic political movements. Because it's easier, you see, to ignore the complicated solutions to these issues in exchange for glomming to one larger-than-life figure. The question right now is who that figure will be for the GOP, because that's simply the direction things are heading. And whoever that person is needs to both toe the political line between the establishment Republicans and up-and-coming MAGA folk while not just seeming like a bad Trump impersonation. And I don't know, maybe that person just isn't in the spotlight right now, but might be very soon. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Rachel Maddow Show, highlighting some GOP hopefuls bending the knee to Trump and QAnon in their quest for power. Skullduggery compared the Trump era of old and the coming Tucker Carlson era. 
The majority report looked at Texas Governor Abbott's attempts to use the border to raise his national profile. Some more news looked at DeSantis's embarrassing sucking up to Trump and the overt racism he used to get elected. The takeaway analyzed the way DeSantis is using his power in Florida, particularly in relationship to Disney, and some more news came back to take a look at the dynamics of early fascism and the role of the manipulated masses. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from The Bulwark podcast, not a usual source for us. The Bulwark, to be clear, is a very anti-Trump but conservative publication. So think the Lincoln Project and all that. And I included this clip for members because I have found sometimes that in sort of this narrow lane of analyzing the fall of the Republican Party from political party to sort of more cult, conservatives who have been able to watch it all happen from the inside but remain relatively clear-eyed about it sometimes have a better analysis than those either watching from the sidelines or from the other side of the ideological aisle. So I thought this one was worth a listen. You know, if you read Rick Scott's 11-point so-called plan for uh, the Republican future, you know it's not there? Healthcare. The party that spent a decade vowing to repeal and replace Obamacare, where Heritage and AEI and the others spent together a billion dollars over eight years promising to deliver an alternative because they live entirely in a world of representation. It's not things that interest them. It's images of things. It's things as refracted through social media. It's about pure animus and representation and arguments about arguments, or even better, arguments about arguments about arguments. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Just finished listening to the recent Unions episode. My opinion on why the conversation around the workers' movement doesn't include anything about making jobs something we love and integrate into our lives is because that mentality has been used against workers for too long. I will not let my passion or compassion be leveraged against me anymore. My top priorities are that I must protect my mental and physical health and provide for my family. With every industry and sector seeming to be struggling with work conditions and adequate pay, Just give me a job I can tolerate that pays my bills. Once we have raised the baseline expectations back to thriving wages, actually beneficial benefits, and dignified working conditions, then I will maybe factor in my own love for a particular job. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Although now there's another way because the message that we just heard came from our Discord community. A community member just had that comment about a recent episode and I found it so thought-provoking that I decided to use it on the show. So to sum up and hopefully not misrepresent what the person was saying, you know, basically the idea of enjoying your job can be used against a person. And that is why they argue that the labor movement really doesn't 
get into that territory. They don't go around advocating that jobs should be fun or not soul crushing or anything like that. Because as soon as people start getting non-monetary rewards, like having a job that isn't terrible, that can just be used as an excuse to pay a person less. And that's very true. That is extremely true. Uh, I think the first, maybe the most important takeaway from that is how damning of a statement is that about the dynamics of our labor system, not the labor movement, the labor system, that to advocate that a job not be horrifying would take away from one's ability to advocate that we also get paid enough, right? Those, those things shouldn't actually be at odds with one another, but here we are. So as I said, there are non-monetary rewards. You know, if you don't hate your job or you feel like you're doing something worthwhile and fulfilling in your job, then clearly you don't really need to get paid very much. This is sarcasm I'm using, but you know, this is the natural extension of the idea that goes back a long ways that, for instance, housework and motherhood are so inherently satisfying that we certainly shouldn't consider these tasks labor. Perish the thought that we would think of compensating people for their labor when they're having such a good time doing it, right? And then, you know, women entered the workforce and, and you know, large influx, and they were offered lower pay in part because of all the non-monetary rewards that getting to work offered. Sarah Jaffe, who wrote Work Won't Love You Back, which was referenced in our recent labor episode, talks about this phenomenon as part of the do-what-you-love propaganda being pushed by large corporations as a conscious strategy to pay people less. So, if people are supposed to feel fulfilled and full of pride for being an office worker in a corporation, just think how gleeful someone working at a nonprofit must feel. And just imagine how little we could pay them to do that work, not to mention parenting and, and all the rest. So you end up with this inverse ratio between fulfillment and pay. And, you know, probably a hundred thousand articles have been written on which should you do? Should you follow your passion or should you take the money and do something soul sucking? Because if what you're doing for work is either really soul crushing, so think like David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, just people who believe that their jobs shouldn't exist, that they're, they, they uh, provide no value to society. Or maybe you do something that's actively harmful. You know, you're a oil and gas executive or something, right? Like, you're going to need to get paid more to do those jobs. Usually, the worse your job is for the world, the more you can probably get paid for it. And the same in reverse. I mean, if you're a nurse saving lives, you should, you should basically be paying the hospital for the honor of doing that work. Am I right? More sarcasm. So this is the scale that we're used to talking about. This gets talked about a lot. The fulfilling work to harmful work scale. The get paid less for doing something good, get paid more for doing something bad. It's ripe for abuse, underpayment, meager benefits, etc. But then there's a separate scale, and this is what I was talking about, which is the humanizing versus dehumanizing scale, which could be talking about the actual work involved, but it doesn't necessarily have to be talking about that. And to illustrate this, I saw just a, sort of an interesting exchange on Twitter recently, apropos of I don't even know what, 
One person made just a slightly humorous and innocuous comment about how women in sort of a tribal setting would have had to have been doing this tedious work, maybe that they would have been hand milling grains with a pistol or something, and that they didn't even have podcasts to listen to, right? Like, a little funny comment. And I'm heavily paraphrasing because I couldn't find the original tweet anymore, but that's the basic idea. But then another person showed up and commented that these women would have done that work, mindless as it was, probably sitting in a circle and telling stories to each other. And so, yes, they kind of did have podcasts to listen to, was was the response. So when I talk about work that is conducive to human needs, that is more what I'm talking about. Doing mindless work, grinding grain, isn't conducive to human needs in and of itself. I mean, other than helping provide food to eat. But the act of doing the work might not feel fulfilling or, you know, it's not fun necessarily, but it can be integrated into other human needs like social bonding. And just as a side note, I, I feel like I need to bring this up. I'm not just today, but, but the other day, I kind of feel like I need to bring this up because I don't hear labor organizers mention this sort of thing very much, but also I don't know that most people really understand what real human needs are, but I am beginning to think that we are having a moment in time when a lot of people are starting to figure it out. The last decade or so, right? Like we thought social media was going to connect us more, but it tends to make us feel more separate. That was a surprise. And then the pandemic came along and made everyone collectively realize all at the same time how important in-person interactions are. So I have hope that we're going to start moving in the right direction by demanding that we move in the right direction because we've all had this realization. So up until now, I've only heard labor advocates speak about human needs in opposition to specific policies. So here's the best example I can think of. They were fighting against algorithmically managed scheduling tools that gives people irregular schedules each week. So the, you know, hourly workers, shift workers, and each week they couldn't count on what their schedule is going to be. And and they may not even know what their schedule is going to be until the last day of the week, getting ready for the next week, right? And all of that makes it harder for an employee at that place of work to schedule the rest of their lives around their work, like childcare or just organizing activities or planning carpool, you know, whatever it is. And managing one's life outside of work is a human need. And so irregular scheduling is an important issue to fight against, but it is still being framed in the negative. There's no talk about how consistent scheduling would also be good, not just because people would be less scattered or less, their lives would be less hectic, but that it would be actively positive by creating work environments in which coworkers could get to know each other better, which I think should be seen not just as like a little bonus or a little positive, or wouldn't that be nice, but as part of making a work environment conducive to human needs. And that that should be seen as part of the baseline for how we develop and design our work environments. Framing an argument in that way turns it into a proactive, you know, a positive argument. So it can be part of a positive vision for what we are fighting for, not just part of a long list of things that we're fighting against. But 
there are further consequences too. Uh, so I was reminded of this, you know, the onion had a great headline a little while ago uh, during all the talk about the great resignation. And so the onion satirical headline was economists trace great resignation to comedy central airing office space constantly during workers formative years. And so spoiler alert about office space, you know, the victory, the characters in office space enjoy is not that they end up with work that is fulfilling, but work that is more conducive to their human needs, being outside, using their bodies to create, spending time with friends. But the spending time with friends is actually something that they could do to some extent back at the office, which helped them develop the camaraderie, and the courage to fight back against the office and ultimately quit. Now, I I know that The Onion is joking, but employees could very well watch that movie and be inspired to demand something better from their workplace. But management might watch that and think, hmm, how can we stop our employees from becoming friends with each other so that they don't rebel against us? And that's where you get to algorithmic scheduling and Amazon's policies of that were discussed that, that I was referring to in, in the previous episode, where they schedule and you know employ people in such a way that they hardly ever meet the same person twice. And so relationships are basically impossible to forge in, in that scenario. So the obvious solution, I, and I just have to put this out there, the obvious solution is that we all work for co-ops, where the workers and the management are on the same side or are literally the same people. That's how you get rid of this adversarial dynamic. But for the time being, unions should be demanding more than just good pay, benefits, and time off, but also for things like break times to be scheduled in such a way that is conducive to employees socializing with each other. It would be good for the humanity of those workers and good for the continued development of the kind of solidarity required to maintain support for unionization, to be quite blunt. I mean, you know how when Republicans take power, one of the first things they always do is start changing rules that will help them maintain power going forward. This is like that. Unions should be demanding rule changes that are further conducive to unionization, as well as to the mental health of the people that they're representing on the grounds that workplaces should be conducive to human needs. Not fulfilling, not sources of pride, not a place for you to do what you love so you never have to work a day in your life, or any of the other bullshit propaganda that just benefits the management, but workplaces that are conducive to human needs. And geez, you know, I hear myself say that, and I think you could hear that in in a couple of different ways. You could think like, "Oh, that sounds sort of inspiring." Yeah, like we we need a you know better work environments, or you could think we want workplaces that are conducive to human needs. How fucking low is our bar? <laughs> We're right back to where we started. How damning is this whole conversation of our entire labor system that what? I think we should be demanding that we are not demanding is workplaces that are conducive to human needs. Shouldn't that go without saying? And yet, no, it doesn't. As always, 
Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And continuing to speak about camaraderie and solidarity, join our Best of Left Discord community, join the discussion there, and maybe spark more uh, hopefully interesting thoughts like the ones I laid out today, and keep sending in your interesting articles, videos, books, podcast episodes, anything like that, just send those in to me, leave me a voicemail, tweet at us, send me an email, whatever you like. I'm wide open to uh, recommendations of interesting things. I'm always looking for something else to spark interesting ideas. And with that, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.